0: Chapter 4 of The Old Ladies by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 Red Amber. It was not until the second Sunday after her arrival at Pontaby Square that May Beringer met Mrs. Amorest and Mrs. Payne. It was a cold Sunday morning. From her bed, May Beringer could see the sun like a red orange above the grey roofs of the house. The houses were threaded with white frost. The smoke rose against the grey sky, a greyer shadow, and the limbs of the one tree were silver-lined. Did she move her head, the sun appeared also to move and to rock in friendly greeting, and because the glass of the window was rough and coarse-grained, the sun swelled as though with sudden ribaldry, and then ran thin and tight like a drawn string. It was warm in bed and cosy, and faintly the bells could be heard two sparrows came hopping to the window and then a robin very soon her breakfast would come in and she could give them something she had told mrs bloxam that she would always have a boiled egg on sunday as an extra to the toast and potted meat that was her customary fare at the thought of the egg she smiled and sat up in bed bending over to the chair for her green sweater She tied the arms of this tightly round her neck, allowing the body of it to fall over her breast. Then she looked for the piece of amber and saw that it was there, secure, although scarcely visible in the dim light. Then she looked through the window again and saw the faintest thread of pale blue break the grey. So it would be a fine day, a fine, clear, frosty Sunday. Could anything be nicer?' A moment later, Pip was at the door, welcoming Mrs. Bloxham, who arrived carrying, pressed against her mountainous bosom, a tray, and her black bonnet with black bugles, her Sunday wear, was pushed to the back of her head, and her face was all smiles. "'Now here's a nice Sunday surprise, my dear,' she shouted. She always shouted at her old ladies, although they were none of them deaf. "'There's that kind woman giving you one of her sausages this morning.' "'What woman?' asked Miss Beringer, "'Why, to be sure, Mrs. Amorest, of course. I'd hardly been in her room two minutes when she says, "'Mrs. Bloxham,' she says, "'there's a sausage more than I can manage,' she says. "'I've been wondering whether Miss Bellringer—' Mrs. Bloxham's perversions were always of kindly intention. "'Would like one,' she says. "'Of course, I haven't exactly called on her, "'but we're all friends in this house,' she says.' "'Or I'm sure we ought to be. You just ask her, Mrs. Bloxham. "'I know Mrs. Payne doesn't care for sausages,' she says. "'It's just waste giving em to her.' "'Why, Mum,' I says to her, "'Miss Bellringer looks just the sort of lady to relish a sausage. "'And it's a friendly feeling in you, Mum,' I says. "'And if Sunday isn't the day to be friendly on, where will we all be?' I says.' poor worm, and her looking so pretty, sitting up in bed with her kind thoughts and her snow-white air and her pretty little ways. So I just brought it along, miss, feelin' sure you'd relish it, and I've cooked it to a turn in Mrs. Amorest's frying pan. You just wait, my pretty, your turn's coming. Almost human, to Miss Etney. more human than some, I'm thinkin'. During this time, Mrs. Bloxham was arranging Miss Beringer's bed, patting and pushing the pillows, smoothing the sheets, and setting the tray so that it sat evenly over Miss Beringer's lap. When that lady saw the tea, the egg, the buttered toast, the crisp and bursting sausage, her pale face flushed. Not a bad beginning to a pleasant Sunday. And she must go in and thank Mrs. Amorest. She was longing for a friend. She ached to love somebody again. Mrs. Bloxham entertained her with gossip, giving her detailed horrors out of the Sunday news with infinite relish and gusto, lit the fire, tidied the room, took away the tray again, and departed. Then May Beringer sank back into slumber again, the easy slumber of the old, and lying there, the green muffler yet tied about her neck, so pale she was and still that it might have been death that held her. The clock ticked on. The dog also slept. There was not a sound in the house. Then, when it was nearly two o'clock, a coal fell out of the dying fire and crashed upon the grate. Pip woke and barked. Up, Miss Barringer started, thinking the house on fire. She looked at the clock and, seeing how late it was, was soon out of bed. She washed in water icy cold, put on the warmest underclothing she had, and that was not warm enough, but she had been given by the landlady at St. Lennon a grey knitted woolen waistcoat, and this was a great comfort to her now. Her best clothes were her dark red jacket and skirt. The skirt was short, both for the period and her age, but they were not yet faded and they were warm. She stared at herself in the little looking-glass over the wash-hand stand and was pleased. She looked young for her age, she thought. She was strong and healthy. It was not so absurd that she should find work as governess and companion. For a moment her fears left her. She was brave and optimistic and happy. Full of this spirit, she went out, Pip closely at her heel, crossed the passage, and knocked on Mrs. Amorest's door. "'Come in!' said a faint little voice and entering she was at once charmed charmed with the neatness and tidiness of the room some red-brown chrysanthemums in a thin silver vase the old rose-colored chairs, the blue and silver scene beyond the window, the orange fire, faint like paper beneath the winter sun, that flooded the place, and then the little woman with her snow-white hair, her beautiful hands, and the smile that shone in her eyes, as turning she saw her visitor. "'It must be Miss Barringer,' she said, coming forward.' "'Yes, it is,' said May Beringer, her long body trembling with interest and excitement. "'I had to come in and just thank you for being so generous, as I am sure indeed you have been to a perfect stranger, and one whom you've never seen in your life before, and have no reason at all to be kind to. Miss Beringer always said everything twice or three times. It seemed to make her statement more definite.' "'You will sit down, won't you?' Mrs. Amorest asked, drawing one of the armchairs near to the fire. "'Because we are such very near neighbours, we must know one another a little.' "'I'm sure that's very kind of you,' said May Beringer breathlessly. "'I sound as though I'd been running up a whole flight of stairs, don't I? But I haven't, really. It's only my nervousness. I'm always shy at meeting anyone for the first time.' I've always been so ever since a child, and, indeed, I can't remember a time when I wasn't nervous. As quite a little girl, I was as shy as anything. You mustn't be shy with me, said Miss Amorest gently. I'm a very unalarming person. What a delightful dog! Yes, isn't he? I've always been partial to dogs. I've had dogs as companions for years and years. In fact, I'm never without a dog. His name's Pip. "'Pip! What a nice name! Come here, Pip! Come and make friends!' Pip came, seeing that his mistress wished him to do so, but no one was very real to him save his mistress. However, he licked Mrs. Amorest's hand and then lay down, his head on his paws, waiting until his mistress should wish to move. The two ladies considered one another. While talking amiably, they were taking in one another's points. Each was thinking the other really old and pitying a little, but each needed a friend. It was, nevertheless, very soon evident that May Beringer would be clay in the hands of Mrs. Amorest, and when that old lady realized that it was so, there came into her heart not contempt, she felt contempt for no human being, but a little sigh, perhaps of regret. What she wanted was someone stronger than herself, Someone on whose opinion she could rely, someone who would give her true and wise advice. It was very soon evident that May Beringer would be no projector of wise advice. They talked a little, keeping their own competences, and soon a silence fell. It was then that Mrs. Amherst said, "'Now, I wonder. I had been thinking of going to the cathedral service this afternoon. Would you care to come, too?' As soon as she said it, she wished that she had not, for reasons that were, for her, weak and snobbish. Poor Miss Beringer would attract attention walking into the cathedral. Her face was odd, her clothes were odd, and Mrs. Amorest was sure that her walk would be odd. Mrs. Amorest, absolutely courageous though she was, hated to attract attention by any eccentricity. She hoped that Miss Beringer would decline, But at once, when she saw the light in Miss Beringer's eyes and heard the happiness in her voice as she said, Thank you, I'll most certainly come. I'll go with you with pleasure. She was glad that she had suggested it. She thought to herself, Poor old thing, she must be terribly lonely. And at that very same moment, May Beringer was thinking to herself, Poor old thing, I'm sure she's as lonely as anything. It must be wonderful to have someone to go with. So they went very happily together, slowly down the stairs, because the stairs were dark, although it was early afternoon, and then slowly through the streets, because it was a cold and frosty afternoon. That, at any rate, was the reason that they gave to one another. The real reason was that their limbs were not so strong nor so active as they had been. They still did not give one another any confidences, May Beringer having in her mind always the old man with the silvery hair, and Mrs. Amorest, because, in spite of her recent rashness with Agatha Payne, she was very good at keeping her own counsel. Nevertheless, by the time that they had reached the high cathedral door, they were very good friends. May Beringer because she wanted someone to love willy-nilly, and Mrs. Amorest because she was touched by May Beringer's apparent helplessness. Within the quiet of the cathedral, they were happy indeed. They sat in the back of the nave, unnoticed by anybody, and although the seats might have been more comfortable, and why indeed are they not more comfortable, they were very glad to sit down and rest. Mrs. Amorist knew the cathedral by heart. She liked always to have the same place in the nave, almost the place where she was now sitting. Thence she could see to her right, framed between two pillars, the window that had the pictures of the boy Christ, Christ with his mother, Christ playing with the boys by the riverside, Christ in the workshop, and the others. She loved the colors, mistily purple and green and olive, But she loved it also for its subject, thinking of her own son, as she loved to do, when he had been small and helpless and divinely in need of her. Those days seemed to her but of yesterday, and closing her eyes she could see the bright blue glebeshire skies and the sharp jagged teeth of the rocks, the valley running to the very lap of the sand, the white cottage set like a determined foot on the brow of the patient hill ambrose working at his poetry in the upstairs room with the slanting roof and brand in the garden crawling across the tiny plot of green to pull the cat's tail all that she could see and much more as the organ wandered from pillar to pillar as though it were searching for her and suddenly the clergyman's voice rose cutting the dimness and calling her to her prayers she was never so near to her son as in that church And while she stayed, her eyes closed, a hand seemed to be laid upon her brow, and a voice to whisper to her that all was well with her, and that she must be at peace. She did not fear. She feared nor man, nor woman, nor life, nor death. Only God. But today, instinctively, as she sat there, she realized that the woman next to her was compact of fear." She did not know how she had realized it, but this was true, and once again, as in her room, a little tremor of irritation shook her. She did not care for helpless people. Never in her life had she done so. She admired nothing so much as independence and courage, and perhaps that was the one lesson that life still had to teach her—tenderness for the weak. There was nothing she had admired so much in her son as his independence, she admired it also in old Agatha Payne. But here was a woman who would, she foresaw, in no time at all, be depending upon her, wanting her advice, her assistance, her authority. "'Poor old thing!' Mrs. Amorest, as they rose together to listen to the anthem, felt kindly indeed, and because the anthem was Wesley's wilderness, her whole maternal being rose up in poor Miss Beringer's service. So much can familiar music do. Miss Beringer, for her part, was not thinking over much of her companion. She was thinking of the comfort that it was to sit down but the seats were hard and there was a nice, cosy light over everything. Pretty place, pretty place, sleepy, sleepy, strangely sleepy, and then jerked awake to hear, far, far away, the reading of the first lesson. No, she did not consider Mrs. Amorest very deeply, save that she wanted to love her. She wanted to love somebody, quickly, immediately. Somebody of her own class with whom she could go for walks, and somebody too whom one could depend upon, somebody who would find work for her and advise her, and also somebody who would allow her to have her own way when she wanted it. This old lady seemed really what she needed, old of course, poor old dear, but then that was so pleasant for Miss Beringer to be of use to someone who needed her. The Wilderness and the Solitary Place sang the choir. At once May Beringer saw the long white stretch of the St. Lennon sands, the gulls wheeling with discordant cries through the grey air. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad, glad, glad. Her legs were aching. Just below the knee there was a strange grinding pain. She looked about her to see whether anyone were sitting down. No one immediately close to her, and Mrs. Amorest, as straight as a stick, her little head up like a bird's, a stick and a bird, a stick and a bird. The wilderness and the solitary place, truly the pain that had crept up now into her knees, was too bad to be borne. She sat down. Mrs. Amorous did not turn her head, but May Beringer would like to have whispered, "'It is not because I am truly tired, but I have today a pain in my knee. I can stand as well as you, but today I have a pain. Anyone might have it.' And then she fell asleep, quite suddenly, and dreamt of Jane Betts. The general murmur of prayer, which seemed to her in her dream, to be the rustle of mice in the straw— She was about to call out to Jane, "'Take care, dear. Look out for the mice,' aroused her. She slipped down upon her knees. They hurt her badly, and the wooden prayer-stool cut into her very bone. She could not think of her prayers because of the pain, but vaguely behind the pain ran the mice scampering about in her head. Afraid of what? Of the cat, perhaps. A large, dark cat with green eyes.' She shuddered, and fear came down upon her like a large, grasping hand, and she was glad that she could feel Mrs. Amorest's shoulder against her. They walked home through the velvet-frosted dark. The dark, studded with stars and lights on the hills like the eyes of innumerable animals, watching. Not cats, because they were not green, but tigers and lions. Lions and tigers! She explained this to Mrs. Amherst. They were walking very slowly because they were both extremely tired, but they would not mention this. They are like the eyes of lions and tigers, May Beringer said. But Mrs. Amorest was thinking of the money that her cousin was going to leave her, and she did not hear. One thousand pounds, one thousand pounds! What might she not do? She and Brand together... "'Yes,' she said, "'don't they sing beautifully, especially that boy. "'There's something about a boy's voice that always makes me want to cry. "'Silly, of course.' "'Poor old thing, she was deaf then, as well as old. "'Poor old thing.' "'When May Beringer spoke next, she shouted. "'But still Mrs. Amorest's mind was distant, "'and they arrived in Pontevy Square in silence, Two very, very weary old women.' Slowly, slowly, they mounted the stairs, stopping on every landing for breath, and it was as though, when they stood there, they were listening for someone or something. They could hear only the beating of their hearts. Arrived at their own floor, May Beringer, breathless, gasped, "'I always make a cup of tea about this time. I wonder whether you would come and drink it with me.' Mrs. Amorous said that she would be delighted. "'A minute to take off my hat.' When later she came into May Beringer's room, she exclaimed with pleasure, "'What nice things you have!' May Beringer's heart went out, bursting with love to the dear old thing, looking so charming there in the middle of the floor, with her neat little figure, her beautiful hair, her sparkling eyes. Here was someone to love indeed.' Mrs. Amorest admired everything- the blue carpet, the round mahogany table, the four mahogany chairs, the armchairs, the bookcase, the pictures after cup, especially the bookcase. I do love reading, don't you, Miss Peringer? What have you got here, Mrs. Henry Wood? She writes good stories, I think, and those volumes of good words. I shall ask you to lend me one some day, and Sir Walter Scott. My husband always used to say that Sir Walter Scott had the true romantic spirit, although a little old-fashioned, of course. But then my husband was more modern than I was. As of course he would be, being a writer, he wrote plays and poetry and was very well known in his time. Very well known, indeed. Ah, I see you have Tennyson. Don't you love the idols of the king? I do. That one about Guinevere is such a beautiful tale, I think, but sad, of course, terribly sad. But then they did wrong, poor things, and it was right that they should be punished. Still, I can never help but be sorry for them a little. Tennyson was such a noble poet, I think, perhaps a little too noble sometimes. Don't you think people can be too noble, Miss Beringer, just now and again?' Miss Amorest's eyes twinkled as she straightened herself after looking at the bookcase. That was what her husband used to call her wicked, sarcastic side—the side of her that he had never understood, so that she had been forced to drive it under during their married life, but even now, after all these years, it would on occasion break out. She moved around, admiring everything, while May Beringer saw to the kettle. She saw then the piece of red amber. She stopped where she was, lost in wonder. Oh, dear, what a beautiful thing! Yes, said May Beringer, her voice awed and reverent. That was given me by my dearest friend. How wonderful! I really never have seen anything so beautiful. May I pick it up for a moment? Certainly, do look at it. May Beringer's voice shook with pride. When Mrs. Amorest had it in her hand, she was pleased indeed. She loved beautiful things, but beautiful things were always so remote, behind shop windows, in museums or picture galleries, always ticketed and cataloged, and above your head a notice that said, Don't touch. When her hands closed about this, and she felt its coldness and its strength, When she held it up to the light and saw the shaft of gold strike through to its very heart, when she saw the liquid bubbles of rich ruby red that danced in the cleft of thick, honey-coloured, misted fibre, when she saw the dragon with his flaming head and gold-flashing claws, when she felt its sturdiness and independence and form, she could only say and exclaim, as she replaced it reverently on the mantelpiece, You are fortunate to have it. It lights up all the room." "'May Beringer was pleased. "'To praise her red amber was to praise her Jane Betts, "'and to bring straight back there into the room "'all that warm friendship and love, all those happy days. "'The kettle was boiling, the biscuits were spread upon the blue plate, "'the bread and butter was cut. "'They sat down happily to the round mahogany table. "'I've had a strange pain in my knee today,' said May Beringer. "'I think it must be the frost. "'I wonder whether the frost can have given me a pain in my knee. "'I really never have anything the matter with me. "'As a rule, there's nothing the matter with me at all.' "'Well,' said Mrs. Amorest, "'I don't wonder. "'This sudden cold weather can give anyone anything. "'Now, have you any elements?' "'because I've always found that rubbing in a little elements "'last thing at night is quite wonderful. "'Now, if you haven't any, I'll be only too glad.' There was a knock on the door. Both ladies were startled. "'Come in,' said Miss Beringer. The door slowly opened. Then there was an interval during which nothing happened, save that Pip drew back towards his mistress, growling. Then Mrs. Payne came forward. To Miss Beringer, unprepared for her, she must have been amazing enough. She was wearing her old red wrapper and her crimson shoes. Through her hair was stuck the black comb with the glass diamonds. Her shapeless body, her large heavy bosom, her high color, one of the raggle-taggle gypsies indeed, hemispheres apart from the two English women who sat there looking at her. She had been going to speak, her mouth had opened, a smile had been preparing, but at the instant of entering she had been transfixed, even as Lot's wife, on looking back to the accursed cities of the plains. She stared, her eyes, large and black and piercing, were held as though by the glory of the Lord. She put her hand up to her breast and breathing deeply, seeing neither of the women in front of her nor anything in the room, save the mantelpiece and its contents, gazed. It had been unusual enough for her to leave her room. The cause had been the enthralling excitement of Mrs. Amorest's money. For days now she had considered it, and with every day and with every hour of every day, the thing had grown more dominating.' If that old woman was going to be left £1,000 a year, she would have some of it, a lot of it, half of it, more than half of it. The old woman was without a friend in the world, nor would she have a relation when her cousin died. You could not count that son of hers who, sure enough, had abandoned her forever. No, all that Agatha Payne had to do was to increase her influence, to make the old woman fond of her. Already she was fond of her. That was proved by the very occasions on which she came to visit her. But Agatha Payne must make her more fond of her. She must be very friendly and agreeable and neighborly. All day she had been forcing herself to be neighborly, but her laziness was difficult to subdue. It was a cold day, although the sun was shining, and bed was very agreeable. As she went on through life, bed became more and more agreeable. But at last, around four in the afternoon, Agatha Payne had forced herself out slowly. As she washed and lazily put on a few clothes, her brain crept round and round the thought of Lucy Amorous Money, like a cat around a bird's cage. She thought neither easily nor readily. Did she begin to think deeply, that pain bound itself about her head. She would sit before the old red tablecloth, letting the cards slip through her fingers, knave of diamonds, four of hearts, queen of clubs, seven of hearts, three of clubs, and the fish would come swimming out of the green tank and would circle lazily about her head. Always she saw Lucy Amorous money, like a fish larger than all the others, and with dazzling scales of gold swimming just in front of her. She would put out her hand to touch it, but with a swerve of its tail, it would be away, out of her reach, just above her head. At last, she became active enough to determine on a visit. She would go and see Lucy Amorest, so with a flick of her eye, sending the fish back into the tank again, and leaving the cards loose on the table, under the guardianship of Miranda, she opened the door, shuffled across the hall, and knocked. There was no answer from mrs amorest's room she knocked again still no answer where could the old woman be she opened the door and looked in no one there she closed it and stood licking her finger considering she would not be out it was late now and dark ah the other old lady the new tenant and suddenly the fear struck her that perhaps this new tenant, this Miss Beringer, or whatever Mrs. Bloxham said her name was, might also have her design on Lucy Amorous's money. Lucy Amorous had told her. Why then should she not tell Miss Beringer? Agatha Payne's face grew angry and troubled. Let them just try those two. She'd show them. Already it seemed to her that she had a right to Lucy Amorest's money, to part of it at any rate. Let any one come in and deprive her of what was truly hers, and she would show them. It was with the sudden determination that they were at this very moment plotting together in there that she moved towards the third door farther down the passage the one that had until lately concealed the life hopes and last torments of old red-faced mr hopper dead of double pneumonia and knocked someone said come in and she entered it was immediately after that that the critical moment of her life came to her she had been expecting to see nothing but two old women gossiping together rather than that she saw straight before her as though it had been placed there for her special glory the heart and center of all the color of the world the lamplight the leaping fire illumined it ruby and crimson and amber, blood-red and honey-gold, threaded with flame and clouded with smoky bronze, the pedestal and the dragon came to her. From that instant of their mutual greeting they were one. Far back, deep-set in her gypsy ancestry, she had been arrayed as a queen and color of flame and fire, and running splendor had been her rightful dower. Now she clutched her soiled wrapper about her breasts and lusted for possession as never in her lazy, sensuous, imaginative life she had lusted before. Mrs. Amorest, looking upwards, felt something strange in her gaze. It was strange that she should be here at all. But she did the honors. Miss Barringer, she said, this is Mrs. Payne, who lives with us on this floor. Agatha Payne came forward. Miss Beringer awkwardly rose and, as she always did when she was nervous, giggled. Agatha Payne spoke in her deep, thick voice. I'm glad to meet you. You'll have some tea, won't you? said Miss Beringer. I'll fetch another cup. You must want some tea, I'm sure. I'll get a cup in a moment. She went to the cupboard and Agatha Payne settled down into the vacant chair, her eyes still on the mantelpiece. We've been to the cathedral, said Mrs. Amorest amiably, and we've enjoyed it so much. They had that anthem about the wilderness that I always like. A boy sang so well. Have you been out, Mrs. Payne? No, I have not. Mrs. Payne smiled and did her best to look amiable. Now, don't you go out overtiring yourself. It would never do for you to be knocked up. We can't have you ill. Oh! "'Really?' said Mrs. Amorous, laughing. "'I am very well, indeed. "'I never was better. "'I did feel a little bit tired when I first came in, "'but I'm quite rested now. "'Miss Beringer's tea has done me a world of good.' "'Miss Beringer had brought another cup, "'and Mrs. Payne had her tea. "'Her chair was too small for her. "'She billowed around it. "'Her eyes never left the mantelpiece. "'That's a beautiful thing you have there,' she said at last. "'Oh, my piece of amber,' said Miss Beringer nervously. "'Yes, that's my piece of amber, my most precious possession. It was given me years ago by my dearest friend. I'm so glad you like it.' "'I do like it,' said Mrs. Payne, breathing deeply and staring at it so fixedly that you might think that she hoped to draw it to her magnet-wise. "'I do like it.' "'Oh, I'm so glad you do,' said Miss Beringer. "'It's been much admired. Everyone likes it. "'They say I could get a great deal of money for it if I wished to sell it. "'It's worth a lot of money, I believe.' "'Do you think you would sell it if you were offered a large sum?' asked Agatha Payne. "'Oh, dear, no,' said Miss Beringer. "'Nothing would induce me. It was a present from my dearest friend.' The greatest friend of my life gave it to me. I would never sell it. Nothing would induce me." Agatha Payne slowly rose. Her knees were trembling with excitement. May I look at it closer? she asked. Why, certainly, said Miss Beringer. Please do. Agatha Payne went close to the mantelpiece. May I have in my hands a moment? she asked. Yes, certainly, said May Beringer. She took it, held it in both hands, and stood there brooding over it, exactly as though she had been an old gypsy vagrant telling fortunes. The cool texture of it, so different from its warm, burning color, stole through into the secret places of her heart. She felt, as she held it, that it was hers, that it had always been hers forever and forever and forever. She put it back very tenderly and her lips moved as though she had been bidding it a momentary farewell. Slowly, she came back to the other two women. She sat down again and finished her tea. They talked a little, Pip slept, snapping at imaginary flies in his dreams. A silence fell and the old lady sat, staring in front of them, lost also in their dreams. Then Agatha Payne departed. She turned for a moment at the door and looked back at the mantelpiece. When she was gone, Miss Beringer broke out. Oh, I don't like her at all. Mrs. Amorest. do you like her? Don't you think there's something queer? There's something very odd about her indeed. Mrs. Amorous said, poor old thing. She lives so much alone. She's old and all by herself. We ought to be kind to her. "'Oh, I don't know,' said Miss Beringer, in great agitation. "'I don't think I can be kind to her. "'I don't like her at all. "'I really don't. "'Did you see the queer way she looked at me?' "'She always looks a little strange,' said Mrs. Amorest. "'She has those big black eyes.' "'It wasn't only those eyes,' said Miss Beringer. "'No, it certainly wasn't only those eyes. "'I'm sure she's going to do me a mischief.' I know she is. And did you see the way she held my piece of amber? Just as though it was hers. I'm sure she'll steal it from me." "'Dear Miss Beringer,' said Mrs. Amorous, "'please don't disturb yourself. Mrs. Payne is a good woman. I know she is. I've known her for a long time. There's nothing to be afraid of.' "'Oh, I don't know, I'm sure,' said Miss Beringer. "'I'm sure I don't know. It's very kind of you to say so. "'But I'm sure I don't know. "'I've always been afraid of something all my life. "'It seems to be my destiny. "'It's my fate to have something to be afraid of. "'I'm sure I don't like being under the same roof with her. "'She'll do something to me in my sleep.' "'Mrs. Amorest consoled her as best she could, "'but in her heart was a little scorn "'for this silly, frightened woman, "'and foreboding that she herself "'would have a tiresome time with such a companion.' She said good-night kindly and, moved by her own good heart, bent forward and kissed the other's withered cheek. "'Don't you worry, dear,' she said. "'Have a good sleep, and you'll find you won't be thinking of it in the morning.' But Miss Beringer did think of it. After Mrs. Amorest's departure, she went to her door and locked it. Then she called Pip to her and sat with the dog straddled upon her lap, staring wide-eyed into the fading fire, and every once and again giving a little shiver. End of chapter 4